All right, welcome to Rooted in Curiosity podcast hosted by me, Ashley Goebel. Today, I wanted to come on and kind of speak about my health journey and how that has been going and maybe give some people some insight into what they could maybe look into or different avenues or treatments with similar health issues. So again, this is my story. It is not medical advice and you can take everything with a grain of salt. To start, we would have to go back to when I was 13 years old. So when I was 13 year old, 13 years old, I passed out and when I when it happened, I just remember I didn't feel well. I felt hot and shaky and I had a headache, but my mom told me to go outside and put my BB gun away because it was supposed to rain and she didn't want my um, BB gun getting rusty because the barrel of it was just, um, it was metal and it was already starting to rust a little bit. So she's like, just go get it and put it inside so it doesn't um, get rained on. So I went to go put it in the shed and I remember reaching for the door handle and the next thing I knew I was on the ground and I woke up to my mom screaming at my sister to go get my dad and she thought I was overheating so she just kind of like took basically started taking my clothes off to cool me down and I was fine after I passed out I think I was just maybe a little dizzy and then I don't remember going to urgent care but when I pulled I asked for medical records from the ages like 13 to 15 or 16 to be sent to my current physician so they can kind of get an idea of like what was maybe going on and it said we went to the urgent care and then we just like followed up with my primary care provider which essentially he said that I just had skinny white girl syndrome and I did have a little extra protein in my urine um, and it was like at that 300 marker where they do get a little worried so we just did like annual urine test and I did a 24-hour urine to see how much protein was in there. Again, it was elevated, but it wasn't too worrisome. I just had like one or two that was at like that 300 mark. So really the provider didn't feel like it was anything to worry about at that time. And then what happened? So after that, he just kind of said that you have skinny white girl syndrome Go ahead and add also like sodium or salt to your diet um, and then make sure you're drinking plenty and you should grow out of it. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I just went on with my life from like 13 to 21, I guess. And I did have like random mild symptoms. Like sometimes I'd wake up with like vertigo and be like, I call them my dizzy spells and I'd wake up in these dizzy spells and I would just try to sleep them off and hope they went away. And then I also would just have like all these little random like injuries, sports injuries, but they weren't like straight up injuries. It was more like my hypermobile or extra flexible joints were getting pushed too far back and they're popping out of place, but they would just go right back in place. And since my I have that hypermobility, there wouldn't be a ton of damage. I did like bruise sometimes. So they would just have me do the basic rice, rest, ice, compression, and elevate. Um, and I didn't realize how many times I actually went to the doctor for like different sports injuries until I got my medical records. But yeah, up until then, I think I passed out maybe like four to five times from the ages of 13 to 21. And then when we moved out to Arizona in February of 2022, Seth ended up getting COVID and he gave it to me. And then I was at work and it was like my first week and a half at my new nursing job, like starting my big girl job and I get sick. And I was like, what the heck? What's going on? I was like, told my preceptor, I was like, hey, I'm not feeling well. I can feel my heart racing. I'm having some palpitations and I'm just not feeling well. And she's like, huh, let's take your vitals. So we went ahead and took my vitals. I think it was 170 over like 100 for blood pressure and then heart rate was like 130s and she was like ooh so we tried again it was the same number so she went ahead and told our supervisor and then our supervisor told our manager and my manager's like you're going to the emergency room I will take you so she was walking me down to the emergency room they called down they had a bed ready for me so we were walking down together and we were almost to my bed and I just remember I I kind of like looked at her and my eyes were kind of like 
I couldn't keep my eyes open. I was like, I think I'm going to pass out. And she scoops her arms underneath me and drags me to my room. And um, all my tests ended up coming back fine. They did the normal like chest x-ray, EKG, blood work. The only thing that came back abnormal was um, the COVID test. I was positive for COVID and I did have some hypertension and tachycardia, but obviously it started to calm down because I was resting and they were giving me fluids. So that was basically it. They sent me home, said rest for five days and established care with a primary care provider out here because I was new to Arizona and that was pretty much it. And then after that, it was, what was it? So I established with a primary care provider. They sent me to a cardiologist and just from like their demeanor, he was like, oh, it's anxiety. You just moved out here, started a new job. And I was like, I, I literally said, I don't think it's anxiety. Like walking from the couch to the bed, my heart rate should not be going up until like the 130s and 40s where I'm short of breath and struggling. Like that is not anxiety. Like that's, it, I'm in my own home. I'm in my own environment. I just have to pee. I have to do a normal bodily function. And he kind of wrote me off as anxiety. The cardiologist, again, they did all the things. They um, did another EKG. They did an echo um, to rule out um, endocarditis and pericarditis because there was some incidents with people my age that were getting COVID were ending up with those um, heart conditions, but I ended up being fine. And they talked about possible autonomic dysfunction in POTS. So we went ahead and did a tilt table. At that time, my heart rate did elevate during the tilt table test, but it did not go high enough for it to be diagnostic. And I did have symptoms. I remember telling the tech that was doing my test, I was like, hey, my feet feel really weird. I don't know what's going on. She went ahead and looked and my legs and feet were literally mottled, meaning they were like purple, pale, discolored and kind of patchy. And she's like, oh yeah, like that doesn't look good. And I was like, no, it doesn't really feel good. So I ended up finishing the test again, being non-diagnostic. They're like, just here's a beta blocker to help with that little tachycardia and hypertension you're having. And they're like, just follow up if you need us. And I was like, okay. So I went from like March until November of that year just like vibing and I wasn't feeling great but I was still functional and then come December I got a new job out here in Arizona at a well-known hospital and after I got into this hospital I went ahead and requested to be seen by a primary care provider in this hospital like group and Usually it's like a six month to one year wait to get into a doctor and super thankfully I got in to one within two months. So I started that job in December and I just remember like I was feeling more ill but it was very non-specific. I couldn't really like point a finger to why I was feeling so sick and then come to February when I see this primary care provider I kind of told her all my symptoms and she looked at me and she's like you have POTS. And I was like, I was like, they tested me though. It was non-diagnostic. And she's like, yeah, but you're getting worse. And these symptoms are so classic for that. She's like, you have hypermobility and you have GI issues. And I was just having like all the telltale signs that I was definitely having some sort of dysfunction or dysregulation of my autonomic system. So she went ahead and she ordered another tilt table test or it's an autonomic reflex screening. So autonomic reflex screening consists of three different tests. So there is the QSAR. So it's where they put these little electrodes. It's usually on your wrist and then your lower legs. And what they are testing for is how your body responds to like your sweating glands because your autonomic nervous system or the automatic system, which automatically produces functions, I guess you could say. Um, so it tests for your sweating because we don't have to think about sweating. Our body sweats for us. And my sweating was fine in all four areas. And then I did the breath test where you have to like breathe into this little like straw and you have to breathe in for a certain duration at a certain like pressure. Like you have to hit these markers, these little lights that are in the room. And then that came back with um, my testing said borderline cardiovagal impairment, um, which could have been related to autonomic neuropathy. So that was February, 2023. And then the t actual tilt table where they tilted me up, I was strapped down to the tip. I was strapped down to the table and they tilted me up 
monitoring my blood pressure and heart rate and then um, asking if I had any symptoms. So at that time, my heart rate did double. Um, my blood pressure was pretty stable throughout it and then I was having some symptoms. And so basically what came out of this tilt table was I did have POTS and I could potentially have some autonomic dysfunction going on or neuropathy, meaning there's some damage to my nerves um, that perform automatic functions. So automatic functions of our body, again, is things we don't have to think about. So that is sweating, digestion, breathing, blood pressure and heart rate control, um, bladder function, just anything we don't have to think about our autonomic system does for us because it's automatic. And so if you think about that, and if there's damage to that, think about all the different signs and symptoms somebody can have or like how they could feel. So after I went ahead and got that diagnosis, I had to get off those meds, the, the beta blocker or the blood pressure med I was on, I had to get off of those for two days. And that sent me into my first ever like bad flare-up. So that was very interesting. I was bed bound for a few days because I had to wait for the meds to start working again. And it was, it was very, very rough. I just remember, I didn't really know what was going on. I was just like, I don't feel right. And my Apple watch was saying my heart rate was going up into like the 170s. And I ended up going back to work the next like three days after that testing. So meds were kicking in a little bit. Um, and then the rest of that month was fine. Come March, it was March 6th, 2023, and I was at work, and I was like, oh my goodness, I don't feel good. I was kind of having the presyncope. So presyncope is the feeling or symptoms that you get prior to passing out, and I was like, oh no, I can't pass out at work. Like, I have patience. So I went ahead, and I put my feet up and put my head back and tried to, like, have my blood pressure and heart rate come down, and I looked down, and my watch said my heart rate was in the 170s, and I was like, I don't know if it's safe for me to be working, and I had to work the next day, and the next day, I didn't have any episodes like that, but I did just mention it to my doctor, and of course, like, primary care providers and family medicine, they're closed on the weekends, so she ended up messaging me on Monday morning. She's like, hey, when is your next shift? I don't want you going in. We need to see what's going on. Um, so she ordered some labs and some testing and everything ended up coming back fine. Again, it was just a POTS flare up or episode. And so we were waiting for me to get into the neurologist. And, um, so she, my primary care provider was kind of managing my care. So I think she adjusted my blood pressure meds a little bit. And at that time we were also messing around with some GI meds because my, my digestive system's not great, but it's getting better. Um, and then, so I was out of work for probably two months, and at that time, I did get progressively worse to the point where it was kind of decided between my neurologist and my primary care provider that maybe outpatient nursing would be better than inpatient nursing for me since it's not so physically demanding, the hours are shorter, um, and it's, there's more variety of different things I can do from desk to direct patient care. So I ended up going to outpatient nursing. I started in May of 2023 until September 2023, which luckily this position I was in, I only had to do direct patient care for three days during that time and the rest I was at a desk position. And that is really the only reason I was able to hold that position is because it was a desk sitting sedentary position. I was a triage nurse, so I would call patients and it was a lot of just like epic computer work. And um, so I was able to keep that till September. And then after September, that assignment was coming to an end because I was a float nurse. And I kind of mentioned it to my supervisor. I was like, hey, I have some health issues going on. Basically, when I'm up and moving, I have symptoms. But when I'm sedentary, my symptoms are way more manageable. And she was like, okay, we need to get some specific accommodations written down from your provider. And I was like, okay, cool, I can do that. And I was so nervous because I knew as soon as I got those restrictions, I was going to get pulled out of work. That's exactly what happened. I got those restrictions and I ended up getting pulled out of work. And so September until now, so we're in October, coming to the end of October, still in medical leave. And I'm still not functional. Like I'm still unable to 
wash my own hair because of the heat in the shower and the blood pooling of putting my hands above my head and the blood in my arms pooling to down here and then my heart races to try to get the blood back up to my hands and my head. So it's just... It's just really hard that I have to rely a lot on my husband to take care of me, or Seth, my husband, and, oh, there's a little bug. Um, I have to rely a lot on him, so it's kind of like, how can I take care of another person if I'm unable to take care of myself? And I'm a nurse. That's what we do. We take care of people. So um, I'm hopefully transitioning into an education position because uh, long-term disability, it is an option, but I would have to go one month without pay. And in this economy, I can't do that. <laughs> like, I cannot go a month without pay because the first time I went on medical leave, we literally drained our savings and had to use our credit card on some things because Seth is a full-time student. I was supposed to be the full-time working providing for the home while he finishes up school. He is finishing up school this spring, so really banking on him finishing and being done and getting a full-time job because I am not a reliable source of income at this time, unfortunately. So um, that's kind of where I'm at with my health, but I do want to go through each of my like diagnoses and who diagnosed them um, and just, like, my personal signs and symptoms, and then some of my medications that I'm on to help manage, and then my lifestyle, like, changes that I do also. So, obviously, the first one that I am diagnosed with is POTS. So, it is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and for somebody my age, so I'm around 23 years old, so if you're not an older adult or a child, your heart rate only has to go up 30 beats per minute within 10 minutes of standing or being in an upright position. So there's what's called the poor man's tilt table where you just lay down and then you stand up for 10 minutes and if your heart rate goes up 30 beats, more than likely POTS. Um, and then you can actually get the official tilt table or autonomic reflex screening to assess for POTS and other autonomic um, dysfunctions. Um, again, so POTS falls under an umbrella term called dysautonomia. So dysautonomia has a ton of different, like, diseases, di they're not diseases, conditions or syndromes. So there's orthostatic intolerance. So um, usually that's like you think of like orthostatic hypotension. So when somebody stands up, their blood pressure drops. So if their blood pressure drops, there's not enough in the tank, meaning like there's not enough blood circulating. So their brain gets deprived of oxygen, so your body, natural like mechanism, will make you pass out to get that blood back to your brain because gravity is pulling that blood down. Okay, um, and then if that makes sense, but that's usually how um, POTS is diagnosed, is that 30 beats per minute for somebody around my age, and then again, it falls under an umbrella term of dysautonomia. And so signs and symptoms that I experience from POTS and a lot of my signs and symptoms overlap, unfortunately, because if one illness is flaring, the other one will flare too because they just want to go hand in hand and be besties. Um, but so for POTS, a big one that I deal with is obviously the tachycardia and the blood pooling. So blood pooling is when I stand up and the blood gets stuck basically in my lower extremities. So my heart rate to compensate will start making my heart pump faster to try to get that blood where it's supposed to go. But my blood vessels are like, meh, I don't want to. And or they're like, they're just being lazy and they don't want to constrict to get that blood up where it's supposed to be. Um, and or if somebody has POTS with like nerve damage, my brain is sending signals to my blood vessels. Hey guys, we need to start constricting to get blood to me. Like I'm struggling over here. I'm hungry. And my blood vessels are not getting those messages. So the blood just chills in my legs and that can either make me pass out and or I'll have symptoms where I just need to pump my legs. I need to elevate my legs to get that blood where it's supposed to be. Um, shortness of breath, dizziness, vision changes, headache, passing out. Um, so presyncope is a word that people commonly use too. So presyncope can be like where you're seeing black, seeing stars, um, the dizziness, the headache, ringing in the ears is typically the signs of presyncope, but everybody experiences these a little differently. 
So that is pretty much POTS. I think I'm touching on that. But who diagnosed my POTS was a neurologist who specializes in autonomic um, autonomic like disorders and dysfunctions or yeah basically and but cardiologists can also diagnose POTS but what they're going to want to do for any patient is they want to rule out any cardio um, vascular issues so that's why you'll get like the EKG the, you'll, they'll see your little heart rhythm and then they'll do the echo to see the structures and the blood flow in your heart to make sure that is all okay um, and then if they have any other suspicions of vascular abnormalities, so like blood vessel abnormalities, they will do imaging and other like procedures. But um, nine times out of ten, they will just rule out the any cardiovascular abnormalities. And if you're still showing signs and symptoms of POTS and the tests are abnormal to correlate with that, you have POTS. Um, again, usually it's a neurologist, but it can be a cardiologist. And then another syndrome or disorder that I deal with is called mast cell activation disorder or syndrome. And when people look this up, most of the time it will show um, anaphylactic reactions, which MCAS can correlate with another kind of immune response where the bone marrow is full of like histamine and like allergic reaction cells if that makes sense to so dumb it down a little bit and that is more serious that is where people will sometimes even have to get chemotherapy to wipe out that bad bone marrow so um this is kind of more of a mild case i would say but Again, everybody experiences it differently. So the reason why they think I have MCAS is I do have some GI symptoms and then I do have, um, I get like hives randomly. It's mostly on the palms of my hand, oddly enough. And then I did have some random elevated urine histamine tests come back positive. So um, basically how I explain how MCAS affects me is every time I eat or the majority of the time that I eat, Especially before I was getting treated, I had many allergic reactions in my stomach. I would have bloating, pain, cramping, um, nausea, loss of appetite, constipation. But there's also multiple different things that can be causing this. And I have some other conditions that cause GI symptoms. So it's just kind of like a lot of stuff going on and not making my body work properly. So... Um, Again, many reactions when I'm eating, and then sometimes I have symptoms of a UTI without having a urinary tract infection. So I'll have, it's more of like my bladder will feel tender and my urine will be cloudy, but if I were to go to urgent care, let's say, and get it tested, I wouldn't have any um, bacteria in my urine because I, I did this one time and they're like, oh, you don't really have any bacteria in your urine, but we'll still just give you um, antibiotic. And I was like, okay, cool, whatever. And what that is, is there a, there's a buildup of mast cells or histamine in my bladder causing irritation and inflammation. Um, so oh, another way, like my dermatologist kind of explained it when I was having hives on my hands, is I just have very irritable or like irritable histamine or mast cells. So they are overdramatic in a sense. So let's say I get a little scratch from my cat. Instead of it just being a little red and irritated, it will swell up and it'll be really itchy and it will stay there for a few days. So they just like overreact to the littlest stimuli or um, allergen. Um, that, and then like sometimes I'll get like dry eyes and like stuffy nose and like sneezing, like the typical allergy reaction from my MCAS, but I am on antihistamines and an H2 blocker and a mast cell stabilizer for MCAS. So I would say it's semi-well managed at this time. I was on some IV infusions too, just IV Benadryl and Pepsid and a liter of fluids for this. Did it really help? I don't think so. I did not like the IV Benadryl at all. If you ever had that, you know what I'm talking about. And then my next condition is hypermobility spectrum disorder. So there is also a closely related Closely, re closely related um, condition called hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And at this time, I am not diagnosed with that, but it's very closely related to HEDS. 
And basically, I just have hypermobile joints that pop in and out of place, but they're not like fully dislocated. I only fully dislocated this knee once when I was like 16. But other than that, like my ribs will slide over each other if I like bend over to the side. It's not every time, but I can feel it. My my ribs on my left side have been a little painful lately, but usually when they're popping in and out of place, it's not super painful. But like even turning my wrist like this, it pops in and out of place. It just feels like it, I guess. But the joints that affect me the most, I would say, are knees, wrists, jaw, shoulders, and ribs. And basically, having this makes the majority of my, like, connective tissue or just my, um, any, any tissue. So, connective tissue is everywhere. It's, um, on the outside of your blood vessels, your heart, your skin, your joint, like, your joints and all that fun stuff. Your connective tissue is everywhere. So, basically, what it's found is having hypermobility of these joints and or hypermobile's Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome sets you up for a lot of lax or lazy things. So, my blood vessels are lazy. My joints are lazy. So, I have to make sure that I'm building enough muscles to support my joints to stop them popping in and out of place, partially or fully, because the more they do that the faster I'm going to get arthritis, basically, is how they explained it. So, I've been in physical therapy since June. I started with aquatic or pool physical therapy because I was very deconditioned because I was bed slash um, couch ridden for a while. So, they had to kind of start from square one with me and just standing for more than like two to three minutes at that time was very, very hard. But I have now, within the last two weeks, have transitioned to what's called land physical therapy, just meaning I'm on earth. I'm not in the water. <laughs> um, and I'm starting to do some standing exercises because I, for a while there, I was just horizontal on the ground, just trying to build muscle. And I am getting some muscle back. Um, but the muscle pain sucks, um, between just the soreness and then I do just have generalized pain also, unfortunately, but I, I can usually manage the pain pretty well. And what comes along with the hypermobility of either of those conditions is pain, unfortunately, from the arthritis, um, or just like joints partially and fully dislocating and then just the muscles are trying to overcompensate to keep those joints into place and it can cause pain. So dealing with that can be interesting sometimes but just a lot of self-care of like um, I do Epsom salt baths, I have the massage gun, icy hot or biofreeze will help me, stretching um, and then I will have like my husband do like a hand massage on me to just get the blood circulating and break up like the lactic acid in my muscles from working out. And then I guess I should have said, so my neurologist is the one who diagnoses and manages my MCAS, but I did see an allergist because I did have um, allergic reaction in my mouth. It's called oral allergy syndrome. It was only once, so I don't really worry about it, but I do now have to carry an EpiPen just in case. And then for my hypermobility spectrum disorder, I was diagnosed by a geneticist because a lot of the time when people have connective tissue disorders, it is like genetic. So at this time, she diagnosed it with she diagnosed me with HEDS. All right, <laughs> and now next, so chronic gastritis. So I was diagnosed with chronic gastritis. I had what's called an EGD or an upper scope or endoscopy. So they stuck a camera down my throat um, to look at all, down my throat to look at all the mucous membranes and then into my stomach, same thing, mucous membranes and then my small intestines. They went ahead and aspirated fluid in my small intestines and then took two different biopsies. Um, what they were looking for was uh, bacterial overgrowth, H. pylori, and then they also were just looking for any like inflamed areas and they did find a few patchy inflamed areas in my stomach. The biopsies did come back saying that I did have chronic gastritis. So what my doctor went ahead and did is she put me on omeprazole for two weeks 
because we were like talking over the patient portal. I didn't get to see her in person yet. So I went on Meprazole for two weeks and the sharp pain stopped because I did have like a gastritis flare. I think it was just because they were in there manipulating the tissue and they took biopsies. So I did have like severe pain, which I was like, if this doesn't stop, I'm going to have to go to the emergency room. And I am not someone who will go to the emergency room for stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, like this, something needs to be changed. So then Omeprazole after two days calmed down the pain, thankfully. And then um, for now, I am continuing the Omeprazole for three months. We don't know the cause of the gastritis because I don't drink alcohol. I don't like smoke or anything. I don't eat spicy foods. Um, I don't have any, from what they've seen, I don't have any bile backing up into my stomach I don't have anything autoimmune going on that we're aware of. I did testing and everything came back fine. So we really don't know why I have gastritis. Um, But I do think there might be a link with MCAS, like the mast cell activation, if you think about it. This is just my brain and how it thinks. And I just probably think too much. But I was like, if there is like an inflammatory process or immune process happening in my stomach when I eat because of the... MCAS and the overproduction of mast cells, can that just cause irritation to the lining of my stomach? Like, um, but I was just thinking like maybe that's what's going on, but I, that's not scientific. That's just my brain. And so I think I had, I've had gastritis for a little over two years now because those sharp pains has, have happened before and, um, the acid reflux, which my acid reflux has gotten a lot better. Um, It was kind of nasty. I would just, like, literally, like, burp and puke up. Like, it's not like a puke, but it's like, you know, you just, like, puke a little bit. And it would just be, like, straight up acid. And that was really, really gross. But my primary care provider is the one who ordered those tests and is managing my chronic gastritis at this time. But she said after those three months of omeprazole, we might repeat the um, EGD and then we'll see if the gastritis is better, worse, or the same. And if it is, we'll come up with a different treatment plan, I guess. But yeah, so she's the one that manages that. Otherwise, a gastroenterologist could be the one who could order those tests and then manage. But my primary care provider does have experience in um, the GI world, so I do trust her with that. And then um, I also have some issues with Raynaud's, but my Raynaud's has gotten a lot better since I moved to Arizona because Raynaud's is where the blood vessels, usually in like fingers, toes, nose, and ears, um, the blood vessels will kind of spasm and cut off circulation. And it can be from cold stress or just emotional stress, or it can be an autoimmune response. Mine tends to be from cold stress, so it only happens every now and again, especially again since I moved to Arizona. But when I lived in Iowa, it would happen a lot more in the winter. But even just like grabbing cold drinks or grocery shopping and grabbing stuff out of the freezer section, like I have to like grab it by the littlest corner because it hurt like it hurts to grab cold things. So I tend to just stay away from grabbing onto cold things. So if I eat like a popsicle, I'll make sure to like put uh like a towel around it so I don't have to actually touch the cold icy popsicle. Um but and then again the autonomic neuropathy so this is kind of what my neurologist is going back to. So she's the one that has diagnosed and managed this because of my autonomic reflex screening. But I kind of like spoke to her the last time I had an appointment. I was like if you kind of look at my labs and all my testing My testing and labs have gotten worse from when I first started receiving care with them. So I was kind of like, something is still like going on that it's causing more, is it more damage or am I just not responding to treatment? Like we don't really know what is going on with that. So I am going to repeat testing, I think come February and we'll compare it to my previous testing and see where we're at. But Yeah, so from what it's sounding slash looking like is I do have some sort of nerve damage and it's kind of, from my understanding, it's once the damage is done, it's done from my understanding again. But all these things that I listed, the POTS, MCAS, the HEDS, um, Raynaud's, and autonomic neuropathy, these are not curable. These are treatable. So it's symptom management. 
Um, the chronic gastritis it that is curable. Um, but I think once you like once you have it, you're susceptible to it again. Um, from my understanding again, uh, because chronic gastritis that's a newer one for me. I haven't had it for a while, but that's kind of like the main like diagnoses slash conditions that I deal with. I do have some other ones, but they're just kind of like random and just like, eh. <laughs> like they're just is what it is. But now I will go into my medications that I've tried. So my primary care provider also ordered what's called it's like pharmacogenetics. So it was like a little cheek swab to test my genes to see, like test common genes that metabolize like common medications. So it was found that I don't metabolize beta blockers very well, primarily the propranolol, metoprolol, and carvedilol. So I was on propranolol and I gained a bunch of weight and I had like significant fatigue, which that makes sense if I don't metabolize it well. So what my pharmacist kind of explained is that from each parent we get one highway. And these highways is what the our little cars or the medication goes on. Um, and one of my lanes has a lot of roadblocks. So um, if one lane has a lot of roadblocks, it's going to get backed up. So it's not metabolizing correctly, if that's like a good depiction of it. But So I was put on Natalol, which is another beta blocker. But from the genetic testing, I was supposed to metabolize it better. Turns out I don't, and it ended up bottoming my blood pressure out to like 70s over 40s, and I ended up passing out, unfortunately. Um, luckily, I didn't hit my head, though, or anything, so it was just like a pass out, wake up, and be like, dang it. <laughs> like, we have to start with another med. So, um, those are two that I tried, and I'm no longer on. But, like, the gold standard, like, standard treatment for POTS is usually beta blockers. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't tolerate them because of the significant blood pressure changes. And there are no medications that are FDA approved to treat POTS. So all of these medications I'm talking about are off-label uses. So that's kind of something to keep in mind. Uh, it's a lot of trial and error, and that's why there's so many. Before this, I was on like one medication. Um, yeah, I was. It was spirlactolone, funny enough, and it was for my acne. And spirlactolone is a diuretic. So think about somebody who has POTS and we're already hypovolemic, meaning we don't have a lot of blood in the tank or we don't like we don't have as much circulating blood as an average person. And I'm taking a diuretic that makes me pee a lot. No wonder why I felt pretty crappy, you know what I mean? But anyways, and then I'm on Pepsid for two different reasons. Again, for that acid buildup for my acid reflex. reflex, And then um, also it's an H2 inhibitor. So it blocks the receptor sites of the like histamine or the mast cells. So it stops from them from accumulating as much. And then Zizol is a antihistamine that I take um, at night. I'm supposed to take it in the morning too, but it just fatigues me so much. I've tried, again, I've tried Allegra and then um, Zyrtec and both of those still fatigue me. So I'm just sticking with Zizol for now and I take it at night even though I'm supposed to take it twice a day. But um, I take the Zizol again for the MCAS. So it helps with the hives on my hands and then it just helps systemically um, throughout. And then I am on Effexor. So Effexor is is a SNRI so usually it's for people that have like um it's usually like for depression and stuff but I'm on it because it also affects the nerves around your bowels and I was having pretty significant constipation so it just helps with like moving your waste around your body is how I'm gonna say it like help with peristalsis and it can also help with nerve pain so again, if you think about like commonly diabetics can have peripheral neuropathy, meaning peripheral like their arms, hands, and toes and legs. And that can be quite painful. So sometimes I would get like the pins and needles and um, like burning pain. So Effexor also helps with that. And then I'm on chromalin, which this one is actually like a solution. So it's a clear little liquid that comes in these little vials and I'm supposed to take that one four times a day with eight ounces of water before I eat and then before bed and that just helps to stop all the mast cells accumulating in my stomach when I eat. 
And then um, I was falling asleep a lot while driving at work um, and all that fun stuff. So I had to start Adderall so I could stay awake. And I'm on a very, very low dose because Adderall can increase your heart rate. And I already have high heart rate, so you have to be very careful with that. And then along with the Adderall, it also helps with blood pooling. Um, so that was another reason why we started on that. And then I'm on a medication also called Mestinon, which Mestinon is usually used in people with myasthevius gravidus. So it helps strengthen the muscles and nerve muscles from my understanding. And it can also help with heart rate and bowel and like bowel and GI issues. So it did not really touch my heart rate, unfortunately, but it did help with my constipation. So Effexor and Mestinon really, really helped with my bowel issues. And then I'm also on Midodrin, which Midodrin is usually used for people with low blood pressure, um, which I now do have low blood pressure when prior to this I had high blood pressure after COVID. Um, and Midodrin can also help with blood pooling, which it really significantly, significantly does help with mine. Like right now, um, I ran out of it and I didn't realize I did. So I had to send a message to my doctor. It's actually ready to go pick, be picked up. But yesterday I could feel like the, the heaviness of the blood in my feet. And then when my feet are up next to me like this, they're so cold and they don't have any blood. So it really, really helps with the blood pooling. And then, again, I'm on the omeprazole, which is a PPI or a proton pump inhibitor, which just helps with, like, the acid and all that junk in your stomach, and I'm on that for the chronic gastritis. And, again, you don't want to be on, like, a PPI or proton pump inhibitor for long amount of times because it can inhibit your absorption of, like, B12, and there's been links to increasing the chances of dementia and stuff, but it's just not a good med to be on chronically. And then this last medication is a newer medication for me, which is called Colonar, um, and it is a heart failure medication, so it does have a little more serious side effects, and I've been on it for, I think, two, coming up on two months, and two months is where you start to get the side effects, and I'm on the highest dose now. And it's still not helping me fully, but I do see improvements with it within the last, like, two to three weeks. Um... The signs or the side effects that I'm having, I was having vision changes where it was like stars, halos, and then it was like outlines of like waving, like it was weird. It was like waving outlines and it really like disoriented me. Luckily, I was going to bed anyway, so I just went to bed. I woke up and I was fine. And then it did increase my chest discomfort and palpitations, um, like frequency and duration, but um, I was just like, eh, it is what it is. I let my doctor know they haven't said anything. So I was like, okay, it's probably fine. And I did have a sleep study not too long ago and they had me hooked up to like an EKG and my heart rhythm was fine when I was having the increased chest pain and discomfort and, um, palpitations. So I was just like, eh, it's probably fine. And I was in sinus rhythm, so I'm not too worried about it. But yeah, so those are like the main medications that I have tried slash I'm on and some other things that I do to modify my life to make it a little easier is if I know I'm going out somewhere in like grocery shopping, shopping in general, I if I'm having like a medium to rough day, I will take my walker so I know I have a place to sit because I was sitting on the ground a lot in public and that's just like, that's just gross and unsanitary. So I would carry my walker or walk with my walker with me and I could sit down as needed, especially when I was in my really, really rough stages, so like a month ago. <laughs> and then compression socks. I do knee high or thigh high, or you can even just do pretty tight leggings and that will help with getting the blood back where it's supposed to, your brain and heart. And then I use a shower chair for the shower and then I also just take it out of the shower. So like when I'm brushing my teeth, washing my face, I can sit and like put my legs up to keep everything, um, like the closer it is to my body. So like how I'm sitting like really crunched right now, the closer I'm crunched into myself, the better my blood circulates. So um, I did that when I was younger too and I didn't know that was like my body unconsciously compensating. But yeah, so... And then lifestyle changes. I've been trying to eat a little better, but it's been a little difficult. I've been having 
pretty significant like loss of appetite but I think it's getting better. It seems around my menstruation that I get my appetite back and I'm eating. I do have to like be cautious what I eat because my stomach doesn't like a lot of stuff but then once I'm off my period I'm back to like not being hungry and I just feel kind of sluggish and stuff hurts my stomach so I don't know what that's about, but um, that was newer within the last, like, two months now. And then um, I'm in physical therapy, so I usually give myself one to two days off a week from physical therapy. And then I go into the facility two times a week, and then I do my at-home exercises. Um, But again, giving myself one to two days off to just recover and then again I do the Epsom salt baths, the massage gun, the icy hot, and then I will utilize Tylenol but or ibuprofen, but I haven't really for like muscle pain and stuff. And obviously hydrating 80 ounces of water a day, and then I add sodium or electrolytes to my water and then sodium just to salt to my foods. But make sure you like talk to your doctor about that before you do it because most people are not supposed to have a ton of salts. Um, so that's kind of odd, but yeah. So I usually make sure that at least 40 ounces of my fluids that I'm drinking has some sort of electrolytes. So this is a 40 ounce right here. This is my water, um, water, water bottle. <laughs> and then I have two, I usually do like an electrolyte drink and then, um, like a packet or I do like Propel, Gatorade, or liquid IV or something like that for my other 40 ounces. And then um, if I drink more, it can be like a fun drink, like a lemonade or a Sprite or something like that. But just making sure you're keeping up with your fluids because that's that's a huge thing with um, POTS and just being healthy in general. But yeah, and then some other doctors that I have, I have seen. So again, cardiologists to rule out any cardiovascular disease and then my neurologist who manages my POTS and MCAS. And then I've seen, this just died, my iPad. And then I've seen a rheumatologist to rule out any autoimmune conditions. I've seen a dermatologist um, because they wanted to, one, to look at my moles and two, they wanted to see if I was having these certain mast cell looking moles or nodule things, which I don't think I ended up having that. And then again, I had to see him for hives. And then also on my hands, I guess when I was having hives, I also had some sort of um, eczema, which I never had before, which was weird. But um, And then I seen a gynecologist because I was having like issues with my um, menstruation and stuff like that. And I guess I do have some cysts on my ovaries, but they don't bother me, so... They're just, they're just hanging out. And then I seen the clinical genomics for the hypermobility, um, so geneticists. And then I seen a sleep medicine for my just excessive daytime sleepiness and um, had a sleep study, which I'm actually meeting with her on Wednesday to go over those results. And then I think that's it. And then a physical therapist. I think that's who I've all seen this year. <laughs> I've seen a ton of people. Oh, I guess my allergist. I did see the allergist, and basically he's just like um, oral allergy syndrome because I had this, like I was eating spinach and artichoke dip, and my mouth got tingly, swelled up, couldn't swallow, and it only lasted for like probably the episode was probably like eight minutes total, and it went away by itself. I didn't take anything, so he said it was probably oral allergy syndrome, so I was like, okay, cool. He's like, make sure you carry an EpiPen in case it does turn into anaphylaxis, so... I do have an EpiPen with me if I ever need it, but I haven't, thankfully. But that's pretty much it. I mean, I hope you got a little bit out of it because it was kind of like a mix between like my story and then like what kind of like medical stuff, I guess, too. But I guess I didn't really talk about it. So MCAS is usually, MCAS is harder to diagnose, but usually um, if you're having symptoms and you get better with treatment, that's kind of like a rough diagnosis. But if you have the elevated urine histamine and then an elevated tryptase is what they test for too. That is a blood test. Um, And then the hypermobility is just, that's diagnosed by history, symptoms, and then you will demonstrate a few things to see if you're hypermobile. It's like they have you bend your pinky back, thumb to wrist. They have you bend down and touch the ground without bending your knees. They'll look to see if your like elbows hyperextend, if your knees hyperextend. 
and then um, just ask you some random questions and family history. And then um, autonomic neuropathy is diagnosed with the autonomic reflex screening um, just between the sweat test. I was, it's with all of it. So the sweat test, the breath te- like breathing test, and then also the tilt table. And then gastritis, the best way to obviously diagnose that is to actually get a biopsy and visualize. So, and then Raynaud's is usually symptoms. They will look at your nail beds um, to see if there's any like abnormal blood vessels in there. And then that's pretty much it. But yeah, that is my story. And being chronically ill and having an invisible illness is like, that's, it's not easy because it's not something you can see. Like me walking down the street or I guess sitting there because walking, I sometimes have a limp and I could be with my walker, but just like looking at me, you wouldn't think I had all these issues, but majority of my days are quite significant battles just to be a little functional and I am getting better, but it's been taking months to see any improvements and a lot of meds. And I it w- I used to be the person that did not want to be on any meds. And now I take eight to nine on a daily basis, multiple times a day where I have alarms that go off. And then I have to go sort my meds and make sure I'm taking the right meds at the right time because I accidentally take the wrong meds at the wrong times. And it's just, it can get really messy. But I mean, I'm grateful for the life that I live, but It's been a little bit of a struggle, (laughs) I will say that, but I've been super grateful with being double insured because I have my own insurance and I'm still on my mom's insurance, so that's really helped with this whole journey, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just hard because not a lot of people understand. Hang in there, you got this, advocate for yourself, Um, make sure you just keep on top of your own health, do what you can do to control your, not control your health, but do what you can do to help you get better. So drink your water, do your exercises. And if you're like really sick to where I was, just try sitting up for five minutes and then lay back down. Sit up for a little bit more and then lay back down. Like do the little things to just make yourself a little better each day. Like I literally, on this medical leave, my goals were just to take a shower. I haven't haven't taken a stand, like I have not taken a standing, took, taken, whatever, a standing shower in probably six months. Um, I haven't washed my hair in probably four months myself. My husband washes it. So that just like shows you that I have like the littlest goals, like make myself one meal, walk my dogs around the block. Like it's such the little things. Walk, walk five stairs with minimum symptoms. It's like the littlest things that is so hard for like me, especially with all these conditions, and yeah, but again, I try to hang on to hope, and I control what I can, I listen to my doctors, I do what they say, I look into different options, I hear people out in their stories and what helped them, I try to help others by telling them my story and helping them find resources, because I do have that unique side where I am a nurse, but I'm also a patient, (laughs) and being a patient is a lot harder than being a nurse, I will say that. But yeah, overall, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Again, this is my story. It's not medical advice, but I appreciate you guys for listening in. Please like and leave a comment and subscribe if you're on YouTube here with me. But if you're listening on audio, please go ahead and share with your friends, leave a review and go ahead. And I think you can follow me on like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm not sure about other ones, but I hope you guys enjoyed. Again, tune in till next week and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye guys.